Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM Plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. In film school, the goal was just make that first feature, make a great film that you're proud of. After that happened, I had no idea any of the next steps. I was like, and then you live in heaven and, you know, like <laughs> Playboy models make your coffee in the morning. This is Death, Sex, and Money. Meditation on inevitable death should be performed daily. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. How often do you guys have sex? And need to talk about more. I like money, though. I'm Anna Sale. Filmmaker Desiree Akhavan minds the details of her own life, especially the most uncomfortable ones. Let's help each other through this. We can't hold each other's hands through our own breakup, Desiree. That's not how it works. And why did I even bother becoming a lesbian? This scene is from her web series, The Slope, about, the tagline says, superficial homophobic lesbians in Park Slope, Brooklyn. Desiree plays Desiree. She made the series with her girlfriend at the time, Ingrid Youngerman, who plays Ingrid. And then they broke up in real life and in their series. Sometimes it's hard to watch. I mean, we break up over the course of this show. We went into the show together. And if you watch the episodes, you can watch us break up. The last episode is called Miserable Best Friends Who Used to Be Together. Mm -hmm. And I'm assuming it was filmed after you'd split up? Yeah. What was that like (laughs) to film that? It was incredibly painful. We're never going to be best friends who used to be together. Look, I just need a little time before I can be your friend again, that's all. Okay. Desiree's first feature-length movie, Appropriate Behavior, draws on the rawness of that breakup. She made the movie when she was a film student with a small budget. Then it got into Sundance. The New York Times called it a winning first feature. And this week it opens in theaters in 12 cities. It starts with a close-up of Desiree's face. She's riding the subway, puffy-eyed and sweaty. Cut to an apartment scene where she's packing a box, cleaning her hair out of a shower drain, then exchanging irritated words with an ex-girlfriend, storming out, walking down the street, carrying only a strap-on and a leather harness. 
Like Desiree, the main character in Appropriate Behavior is an Iranian-American bisexual woman, about 30 years old. The details are fictional, she insists. And this time, she gave the character she plays a different name, Shireen. But it all started with that breakup. Okay, why don't you tell me what you need, Shireen? I need my girlfriend back. Were you heartbroken when you wrote the script? Yeah, very much so. The film didn't end up being very literally about that relationship that I was heartbroken over, but I was incredibly heartbroken at the time. And I wanted to find a really funny and uh, far more entertaining way to talk about the issues that were not so fun to experience. I really want to eat my feelings right now. You know what? I think that's an amazing idea. The movie follows her recovery from heartbreak and her coming out to her Iranian-American family. There are two parents and a brother, just like in Desiree's own family. Did you have to have conversations about, this is my art, and you may recognize some parts of it, but I want you to know I love you and I'm protecting some parts of our relationship? Or how did you navigate that? It's difficult, I think. I mean, first and foremost, you need to be honest with yourself about whether or not you're being fair. And I think the person that I am hardest on and have the the most the most sharp negative things to say anything about it is myself. The only person who's like very much his character is my brother. He is incredibly harsh and mean and I adore him. You are such a dick. <laughs> well, at least I'm not a sexually confused narcissist. Can we please go inside? Can I be your We're constantly no, making fun of each other. He won this award recently. He texted us and he was like, I won the Family First Choice Award for like pediatric surgeons. And I, I texted back. I was like, well, I'm glad that you're some family's first choice. <laughs> he, he's everything. That's how, I mean, whenever I have an accomplishment, he's like, whatever. At least you don't save lives on a daily basis. What did it look like when you came out to your family? What did it look like? <laughs> Not great. I'm vague about it because there's so little that I am, um, that I do keep to myself, that I don't really like to go into it, but it was really negative and um, very uncomfortable for years. How old were you when you came out? 24. So it's been a process. Yeah, it's been a process. And it took so long for anyone to wrap their brain around what that meant for my life and for their lives, because also there was a real ripple down effect to how other people would find out about it within our community. I still don't know any Iranian gay people, or out gay people, I'll say that distinction. So because you've never seen it, it's very weird. And the experience of coming out for that specific reason, that I had never seen anyone else open about that in my own community, felt really strange. And it still feels really strange at times. And, I mean, now my girlfriend and I are welcome everywhere. We go to all the big Persian parties where, you know, last night we hung out with my mom and watched, what did we watch? The Voice. And my, my mom thought that Gwen Stefani was Debbie Harry. It was really funny. She was like, she looks amazing. I do not know how she does it. She must have made a pact with the devil. Desiree was born in New York City. 
Her parents arrived in the U.S. after the Iranian Revolution, when the U.S.-backed Shah of Iran was overthrown and the country became an Islamic republic. Being raised by Iranians means that, like, your rules and your your mindset is on par with somebody who was raised by people who, you know, experienced war. So it made sense that, like, I had this kind of, like, 1950s mentality handed down to me from my parents. And I related more to people's parents when we were griping about, you know, rules and things we wanted to rebel against. Huh. I didn't have the same the same safety net or same comfort or same entitlement. Like, I had a sense of entitlement for sure, but that was highly at odds with the fact that I knew that so many sacrifices had been made for me to be raised in this country and... Um, the horrors that my parents had ex- recently experienced were not distant from us. You went to Horace Mann, mm-hmm. which is an elite high school in New York City. Yeah. Were you on scholarship at school or were you did your, were your parents able to pay for private school? No, they sunk in every bit of inheritance uh, that they had taken from Iran and put it into uh, my education and my brother's education. And it worked really well for him. He is a surgeon. <laughs> He's, it is paying back tenfold for him, but I have yet to show any kind of return on that investment. And were you aware of that as a kid? Yeah, very much so. Not that they, I'm a, this is not to say that they held it over us. It was that when my brother and I were, were very aware of everything, very nervous for everyone's finances and like, you know, little anxious kids. We really um, were not sitting back and relaxing. We we were very aware of uh sacrifices that had been made. What was it like to, to decide to be an artist? It wasn't a decision, that though. No. That's interesting. It was never like, this is what I'd really like to do. It's like, I failed everywhere. I worked <laughs> so hard to be a good, normal person. Like, I'd stay up so late studying for tests and just did horribly. I felt so guilty that I went to this fancy, expensive private school because I was a really terrible student. But I was very good at telling stories, very good at writing plays, very good at performing. And um, everyone just kind of knew that that was something I was, and this is so obnoxious to say, but like something extraordinary happened on stage for me. And it, so much mediocrity was happening everywhere else, like a level of mediocrity that I cannot explain enough, like just such a horrible. I remember I had tutor after tutor after tutor, and they were like, what is wrong with this kid? It was, yeah, that was the case, that it wasn't a choice, and it was it was just who I was, and that's how I function. I mean, it's in, my brother is a doctor. I've said that like 40 times in the past 30 minutes. <laughs> just get I have a sister who's a doctor. I, I know understand. what it's like. Yes. Well, I was just going to say that the reason I repeated myself again was because so my mother uh, had chronic migraine headaches when we were, or even to this day, um, but they were very bad when we were children. And he never wanted to be in a situation. I don't, I mean, I'm putting on my like intro to psychology cap right now, but uh he never wanted to be in a situation where he couldn't solve the problem. And I feel 
I did that in the opposite, in a very different way. But I felt out of control when events were happening and I didn't get to call the shots. And this is what I do to be in control, that if my heart's broken, then I gain control of that narrative. Desiree Akhavan learned to tell those stories early, making up plays as a kid. I wrote, like, a Friday Night Live sketch show. And I had, like, a, an advert for something called Vomlet, the omelet made of vomit. Coming up, how that vomlet led to acting alongside Lena Dunham on HBO. In the last show, I asked for your stories about cheating, and responses have poured in. Twelve years ago, I cheated on my boyfriend of ten years. To this day, I really have no idea how much my ex-girlfriend cheated on me. I think he wanted to be with me, but his kids were holding him back. She went away for a weekend with a guy, but it told me that she was with her mother. I found out later that he had gotten a friend of his pregnant. If you would have asked me beforehand, you know, how would you react if you found out your partner had had an affair? I would have probably said, you know, I will, I will walk. So if cheating is something you know about, you're not alone. We're still collecting stories. Email me at deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. And let me know if this is something you're dealing with right now. If you can, send a recording of your voice telling your story. If you have a smartphone, use your voice memo app, and you can email it right from there, deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. On the next episode, I talk with comedian Margaret Cho about answering phone sex calls to support her early comedy career, the different kinds of relationships and wild sexual adventures that followed, and how now, at 46, she's been surprised she wants something different. The weirdest thing was, like, I, I realized now, oh, I just want somebody to hold my hand. You know, like, I want to share a milkshake with somebody. I realized I never had that sort of time where uh, everything was very innocent. I never had that sort of time where you took things really slowly. And I realized, oh, I need that now. This episode is brought to you by Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he will chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I'm Shankar Vedantam, here to tell you about a great mystery. That mystery is you. As the host of a podcast called Hidden Brain, I explore big questions about what it means to be human. Questions like, where do our emotions come from? Why do so many of us feel overwhelmed by modern life? 
how can we better understand the people around us? Discover your hidden brain. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. We have had a lot of exciting new things to share with you about the show recently, but this might be some of our biggest news yet. Death, Sex, and Money is officially going to be live in New York City at the Tribeca Festival on June 11th. And I want to personally invite you to the live taping we'll be doing with the legendary journalist Kara Swisher. If you know Kara's work, you know her ability to get people to tell her things is unmatched. And she does it in her signature hard-charging way. She's not afraid of things getting a little combustible. I have a slightly different interview style, so we're going to talk about that and play around with that in experimental ways that I think will make this a special show unlike any of our other live shows up to this point. And it's not often that I get to do a live Death, Sex, and Money show in New York, so I really hope to see you there. Whether you're in the city, on the East Coast, or just been looking for a reason to visit New York City, come on June 11th for this show. You can get tickets now at TribecaFilm.com slash Death, Sex, Money. We are so excited to see you there. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Desiree Akhavan is tall, with big eyes and dark hair. In person, she's really striking. But as a kid in school, she said she felt invisible, unless she was on stage. When I was in the sixth grade, that's when all the kids were allowed to do a big show. And that year, it was The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And I got cast as the lion. And I remember after that performance, my parents and my brother looked at me very differently. They just had no idea that I could that I could sing and that I could perform. And yeah, it was very weird. I had not been looked at with respect before that moment. I remember leaving just being like, oh, God, I got to chase that feeling. Hmm. Like replaying it over and over in my head. Like, oh, that's what it is to be special. <laughs> like how I would have felt if I had been looked at as a beautiful person. Like that's what my mother must feel like when people look at her. She's a very beautiful woman. And that's how, after that performance, I had this brief shining moment of my, my family looking at me like that. And it's interesting that you don't mention the audience and the applause. It was your family. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't gauge audience. Like, I don't know, maybe they're drunk. Maybe they like <laughs> really love the show. Maybe you felt like you were making them proud. Yeah, yeah. That's what makes a video she produced before Sundance such a thrill to watch. I love you too, Mom. It shows Desiree telling her mom over Skype that her first feature movie had made the festival. I know you did. And then Lena Dunham calls you up. Yeah, all my brother did was save lives. I really (laughs) kicked his ass in that one. I got Lena Dunham to call me. I mean, what was that like? Shocking and exciting and overwhelming and not at all what we anticipated. But also your perspective changes of what success is and what big is. So it's like... I take it all with a huge grain of salt. It's really exciting and really shocking that this very tiny, low-budget film is being seen and, and you know, getting to be on girls and putting one foot in front of the other. It never feels like enough. <laughs> and I just do not take it very seriously. 
you don't take it seriously because it never feels like enough. I guess, yeah. I mean, you're just blindly chasing a goal that you don't even know what it is anymore. That call from Lena Dunham, it was an email, actually. It led to an acting gig on the new season of Girls. Don't bother. What? You're in Iowa. No one locks their bike here. Desiree plays a tough, unimpressed fellow student when Lena's Hannah Horvath shows up at the Iowa Writers' Workshop. Are you first year? Uh, no, me? I'm, I'm in graduate school. Yeah, no. You don't look like an undergrad at all. Sorry, bro. <laughs> Your work was immediately compared to Lena Dunham's. Mm-hmm. What was it like being on set with her? It was incredible. It's so funny. It's really hard to talk about it without sounding like a a really phony soundbite of like, yeah, we're total best friends. We're growing up together. But when I was on the set of Girls, I, I was so inspired. And I was like, this is how I'd like to work. I saw the best qualities of each person on set brought to the table. It was so calm. It was so collaborative. And, um... She really is a lovely leader at the helm of that ship. Do you think of, how do you feel like being a woman filmmaker has influenced the way that you make films? I don't know, because I've never been a male filmmaker. <laughs> yeah. It's tricky. I, You know, I the differences between male filmmakers and female filmmakers, I don't like to put them in the artistic realm. I think they happen on the business level. On the business level, then, like, what do you notice? What do I notice? I mean, I think this is a better question to ask me once I've made a second and third feature. Yeah. I do notice a huge drop-off that happens after this. And I have no idea if it has to do with the scripts that we choose to move forward with and whether or not women are more precious and want to make a much better, like, to to really, you know, hit a home run with the second feature. And male filmmakers are more, you know— loosey-goosey with their overall career trajectories and feel like they have more time. Yeah, there's something about this career trajectory that's really intense. And I am right now speculating because I'm at the very beginning of it. But this is where I see the change happening, not in how someone runs their set, if they're a woman or a man. That's really interesting. Well, two male filmmakers this year have told me, why don't you just go ahead and make a B-minus second film? Like, shoot it this year, but shoot a B-minus film and you'll be fine. Like, quit freaking out about it. And I don't think I have the luxury of making a B-minus second film if I want to keep working. And I have seen male filmmakers make B-minus movies and keep working. Whereas, and I don't know, the... the it's hard to say this as a definite statement because I am very naive and inexperienced. So the fuck do I know? But these, this is what I'm thinking. That's what you're afraid of. But like, who's going to finance the film after that? You go to director jail. Director <laughs> jail is a place that exists, and I don't want to go there. How do you know about director jail? You hear things. <laughs> <laughs> you hear things. So you're at once saying it's been an amazing moment of opportunity and you're taking it all with a grain of salt because you know you could just chase it, you know, to the into the infinite. But you also have this fear of losing this moment. Yeah, the opportunities are incredible. But at the same time, um, how to navigate those, there's a shelf life to all of it. And navigating it requires uh, being incredibly strategic and intelligent, as well as having talent making films. They're two very different skills. 
Who spends $300 on a garter belt? It is different to, on the one hand, confidently line up investors for your film and then mercilessly skewer your clumsiness in relationships. May I help you? We're just looking. Actually, yes. Um, I'm looking for the grown-up underwear of a woman in charge of her sexuality and not afraid of change. I've got that. The way you describe yourself is sort of not fitting and struggling to feel like you're pleasing your family. It feels so at odds with <laughs> the space you take up in your work <laughs> yeah. and that confidence that that takes. Yeah. Do, do you see that? Mm-hmm. I think when you're making something, you have to shut off a part of yourself. And that when you're leading or when you're a boss, um, you pull this thing that's in you, which is blind belief in yourself and in your vision. And who's going to want to follow someone who like kind of sort of like someone human? That's the, you know, someone as an I like hopes that something works out well. But it's very human to be insecure and it's very human to to want to please others. But when it comes to the work, I really shut that part of myself off. And I have I I blindly chase my taste and I, I don't I don't doubt anything when I'm in my process. When you're in your process and writing stories with roots in your real life, at what point does the like real life consequences, when does that enter your mind? I don't think about the real life because I think the minute that you put pen to paper and you write down a story, it becomes a story. And with each draft, it takes a leap away from the truth of my life. It's no longer this thing that happened to me, but this story I'm using to illustrate a larger point. I really, really can't stress enough how I don't see it as autobiographical. Do you find at the end, though, that the parts of your emotional life that you were trying to work out, do you feel in any way healed Mm. after you've gone through that process? That's really tricky because I find that somewhat self-indulgent to want to, like, do this for the sake of catharsis. I'll say this. So I've spoken about this before. And when I was 16, I was voted the ugliest girl in my school. I've seen that you've said that before. What? <laughs> who created those ballots? For I don't know. Students? It wasn't ballots. <laughs> it was like the very beginning of the Internet. And I don't know who created it. I would really love to to shake that person's hand because it's given me a lot to, to chew on for the past. <laughs> uh, how many years has it been since? I don't know, 20 years. I... I mentioned that because the first play I wrote that people saw, the first play I wrote that got put up, included a whole sequence about that. And that was really powerful for me at 16 because it was no longer this thing that happened to me, but it became a thing that I made something spectacular with, that I turned it into a crazier story, that I was able to manipulate it into part of my my show, which was entirely mine. Whereas before I had made that play, it was this really sad, victimizing moment in my life. So in that way, yes, I have gotten 
healing from this, but it's not like it healed what happened. It's not like it made me feel beautiful or okay with being voted that. It just gave me control and power in a situation that really stripped me of it. And I think a lot of this is about power. And, I, that, and by this, I mean storytelling, that the events in our lives really disempower you at times and that to shape your own narrative is, to me, the, the best approach I can take. Desiree Akhavan's movie Appropriate Behavior opens in theaters this week. It's also available on iTunes, where you can subscribe to Death, Sex, and Money, too. Death, Sex, and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Katie Bishop, Emily Botine, Jenna Weiss-Berman, James Ramsey, Chris Bannon, and Greg Rippin. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Twitter at Anna Sale. So is the show at Death, Sex, Money. Also, sign up for the Death, Sex, and Money weekly newsletter. Once a week, we send out what we're working on, but also the stories you're sharing with us, some really intimate things, and recommendations of other great audio we're listening to, new podcasts, old interviews we've dug up. The sign-up is on our website, deathsexmoney.org, in the right-hand column. And if you're wondering, making a movie and getting onto a famous HBO show may lead to a certain kind of fame, but not fortune. We are talking paltry sums, like very silly paltry sums. But I've mostly just been racking up debt. It's, it's a way to live. It's an American way. That's how, that's how I really prove that we're an American family. <laughs> we have a daughter and several hundred thousand dollars of grad school debt. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.